Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Why did you still offer up to drive the van? You know, when you say hell tour, I mean, like, it, you know, it, it was it was hell for for everybody, even, you know, even us or me. Welcome back to the first 50 gigs, Guns N' Roses, and the making of Appetite for Destruction. It's June 6th, 1985, and the Appetite for Destruction lineup of Guns N' Roses played their last song of their first gig, as a band at the Troubadour in West Hollywood. Slash and Steven were recruited just days prior after Tracy Guns, the original lead guitarist, dropped out, declining Duff and Izzy's invitation to go on a scrappy road trip and play gigs in Seattle. Rob Gardner, the original drummer for GNR, followed Tracy out of the band due to loyalty. With the Troubadour show behind them, the new lineup had 48 hours to pack up their gear and jam up the coast. Danny Burrell is our guest today, a longtime friend of Tracy Guns and a roadie for GNR. He was the captain of the ship for this excursion to the Northwest, commandeering a green Pontiac Catalina station wagon and a stolen gas card. What happened on the scorching corridor of the I-5 would change the dynamic of GNR forever and alter the course of rock and roll history. This is Hell Tour. Danny, welcome to the show. Thank you. Danny was there, like all of our guests. Uh, Danny was the, the driver. It was his, his wagon that took the band up Interstate 5 towards Seattle. And we're going to find out what happens on that trip. Um, but before we do, Mark, you mentioned that you and Danny go way back. Well, my history with Danny, it's a small world. Uh, back in like I maybe 10 or 11 years old, we ended up in the same Hebrew school together, uh, Beverly and Poinsettia. And uh, so I knew him from there. And then uh, he went to Bancroft and Fairfax. And so we had a lot of common friends. And when um, when Guns N' Roses, when Slash and Steven joined Guns N' Roses, then I started seeing Danny again. But I hadn't seen Danny in probably like, maybe 10 years before that. All right. And Danny, you went to Fairfax. Uh, so you were friends with Tracy Guns. Uh, later, you were friends with Slash. Um, but you were definitely in the mix. And, um, you know, you were there with him. You were hanging out. Um, tell us about your, your early relationship with Tracy. Tracy lived like a block away from, from, from Fairfax. So it was like easy to like kind of get school and go over to his house. But we became good friends. I had a tendency at that point in my life, like when I got a friend, I'd spend like all all the time with him. So me and Tracy were together all the time. Um, and he he taught me how to surf, which was like one of the best things that ever happened to me. One of the memorable moments in Fairfax High School was the, you know, the sort of guitar kind of contest that they had at the school. And it was Tracy and it was and it was Slash, and 
as you pointed out, it was, you know, another boy. Tracy was a very sort of, was learning to play guitar in a very technical way. Like he, and his hero was Randy Rhodes. And so he was always trying to emulate Randy Rhodes, either his technique or his sound or his, or his just blinding speed. And that's what, that's what kind of Tracy was all about. Tracy also had like a huge ego. I don't know exactly how we know the way to put it. Um, and, uh, and during this, uh, this guitar challenge, um, you know, Tracy gets up there and he does his thing. And, you know, if you were a guitar aficionado, you would have probably would have appreciated the, like I said, just the blinding speed. But when Slash got up there, it was like something totally different. Like he pulled out this echoplex and he started playing this like long involved melody thing. And for me, it was like, whoa. Like I, to that point, I'd never really heard something like that before. Did you feel bad for your friend at that point? That's a good question. Um, a little bit, I did. One of the reasons why I remember that moment, I was just like, I think I was just as kind of like, kind of like, you know, attracted to Slash just like everybody else was at that moment. So let's fast forward in time a little bit. Um, LA Guns becomes Guns N' Roses. They rebrand themselves. It's Tracy and Rob, and it's Axel and Izzy. Izzy decides to bring in Duff uh, to replace Olebeck, who was on bass. And so Duff represents a whole nother dynamic, um, and he's in the middle of these two teams. He gets disillusioned. He doesn't like the way things are going. So Duff kind of withdraws. Axel convinces him to come back. And he basically is upfront with Axel and says, I don't think Tracy and or Rob are going to cut it. And I think what we should do is come up with this uh, tour to the Northwest and we'll see who has it in them uh, to make this, you know, to go all the way with Guns N' Roses. And so he put it to the test and Duff planned this shakeout tour. Uh, it was going to be in Seattle and then they were going to come down and do shows in Portland, uh, in Eugene, in Sacramento. When the idea was communicated to, to Tracy, he was like, I'm not going on this tour. We have nothing. We have nowhere to stay. Uh, we have no money. We're not going to, I'm not doing this thing. So Duff's idea of the shakeout kind of proved true. Once Tracy left, for whatever reason, Rob followed him. Um, despite the band kind of pleading for him to stay, Rob left too. At this time, they already had a couple gigs scheduled. They had one gig at the Troubadour that was scheduled, and then they were and then they were going to go on this tour. So they had a, a, a very little amount of time uh, to replace their drummer and replace their guitarist before they headed up to Seattle. So. Do you remember this time when Tracy left Guns N' Roses? I can tell you that Tracy was really upset. They really wanted to try and get something going. They felt like they weren't getting anywhere. They weren't, they weren't getting the kind of uh, exposure that they wanted. Boy, I remember it, you know, you know, Duff had an idea to go on the road. He came from up there, you know, he had, and he was older than us, you know, he had, he had connections. Tracy is, is younger, you know, he's just, you know, barely out of high school. It's not like he had any experience going on the road. It's not like we had any money. Um, so doing something like that, you know, was, you know, was a, was a big deal. Tracy just didn't, didn't see it. He didn't see how this was going to work. As to Duff's motivations, you know, or Axel's motivations, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how, you know, big their, you know, or Machiavellian their mo motivations were at this point. You know, like yeah. it was just like, let's do this. You know, let's try this. You know, I have an idea. You know, we know that you were the driver for this tour, um, but knowing that Tracy dropped out and you know Slash and Steven came in, uh, what what kind of kept you in the picture? Uh, knowing that your friend Tracy had dropped out, uh, why did you still offer up uh, to drive the band? Me and Tracy had a really huge fight, and you 
know, and, and the kind of fight that ended our friendship. And, uh, you know, um, it's kind of stupid, really. But um, at that point, I was already, you know, I was already like in this sort of band. You know, they weren't going to make, literally, we're not going to make it to a show unless we took all the shit and stuffed it in my car. In the very, very beginning, like, I was it. Like, you know, I mean, like, I was the guy who lugged all the equipment. They didn't even have enough money to even give me gas money, but, you know. Uh, <laughs> um, this is this is oddly going back to the, to the Fairfax High, you know, <laughs> guitar challenge. Tracy actually held, like, a pretty serious grudge against Slash, and it started then. And it's not because Slash was better or worse or different. It's just that everybody made such a big fucking deal about it. And he had to constantly like hear this crap all the time about comparisons to, to Slash. And he hated it. They were rivals in, in high school anyways, when they were in garage bands, they were rivals and they played parties together and, they, and it was a rivalry going. So, and then when Axel joined LA Guns, that was a bit, Slash was angry because Slash was working with Axel in Hollywood Rose and didn't want to see Axel work with Tracy, but that happened. So that rivalry went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And the LA Guns made it anyway, so so they both, you know, both uh, Slash and Tracy both ended up making it one way or the other. Well, and what you have is during that time, you also have a portfolio of songs, right? And those songs and the following that the bands have, you know, there's a momentum, it moves around. So if somebody steps in and somebody drops out, are they taking advantage of the momentum that was built, you know, prior prior to them coming into the band? So when Slash and Steven swap in for Tracy and Rob in Guns N' Roses, they're the beneficiaries of all of these combined songs that came from Hollywood Rose and L.A. Guns and all this stuff. So we know, having talked to Rob Gardner, it was difficult watching that band uh, take off as fast as they did knowing what was behind them and knowing that they were the beneficiaries of a lot of the work that Rob and Tracy put in. Coming back to the moment, Tracy left. Um, I don't know, did you have a relationship at all with Rob? Um, you know, but Rob seemed to, to, to really have an allegiance to Tracy and, and left the band. Um, you were committed to Guns N' Roses as a group. It sounds like you had a you had a big falling out with Tracy, um, but this this road trip was coming up, and you were committed. So Slash and Steven come in. They have a rehearsal. They play at the Troubadour. Um, I don't know. Were you at that show? I don't remember it that well, but yeah. I was... Did you go to the rehearsal by any chance that they did in Silver Lake before that show? Probably. What was the name of the studio? Um, was it Mars? Well, it was in Silver Lake. I keep confusing it with the place in Silver Lake, Silver Lake that was run by that guy, Nikki B. That's where they rehearse sometimes. It was Nikki's house. The rehearsal studio that they normally could afford when they when they had any money at all was was, Ma, was Mars. I vaguely remember the, the, the rehearsal as well as the show. At this point, not only did the did the band had a, had a following, but they did have some some help in terms of a musicians, tech or roadie kind of thing. You know, Duff approached me to like try to sell me on this idea that that I you know that we you know that we take my car and and we we drive it up to Seattle. I remember this. You know, me me and Duff weren't weren't, weren't close, so you know he was he was acting he was acting a little weird for me. He's actually like kind of being nice to me, and I'm like. What is going on here? And uh, so he's trying to he's trying to smooth me, you know, into this idea, you know, that I that I drive everybody up there. Going back to what I said about Tracy, like, you know, I was I was a little scared, you know, too. You know, I mean, like I I was, you know, taking on quite a bit of responsibility here. You know, ultimately it was Slashy, essentially, you know, got me to go and was the one who talked me into it. You know, and you know that was more like a friend to friend thing. It's like. Come on, Danny. You know, you know, 
let's just do this. Let, let's do this. You know what I mean? It'll be fun. You know what I mean? Yeah, I actually had a real job, and uh, and I a lot of times I was like the only guy who had money. You guys don't have a lot of time. Uh, the the gig was booked for June 8th. Uh, they played at the Troubadour on the 6th. So that really meant that you had the the 7th uh, and and the 8th to get up to that show. So um, you got your car. I'm assuming this was your car. Um, I think you mentioned you had to take your mom's gas card. Um, none of you had money. Uh, you piled all the equipment into the car. Can you just tell us a little bit about getting ready for the trip and, and setting out? I had to like essentially, you know, steal from my mom, you know, in more ways than one to like kind of pull this shit together. A little cash, lift her gas card, you know, you know, lie where I was going, you know, for the next, you know, 42 hours. At that point, I wasn't spending a lot of time at home, but I still owed her, you know, an explanation of where I was going. Where did you tell her you were going? Told her I was just going to stay. I was just going to hang out with Slash. I was staying over with Slash. So uh -huh. Basically is what I told her. So you guys must have gotten the car pretty damn early to get up there. I mean, everybody probably didn't go to sleep, right? I mean, everybody probably stayed up the night before you headed out. There was a plan. From what I remember, you know, kind of worked out between me and Duff. And, uh, you know, the idea was that we were going to, you know, get a start early. You know, I, the car was not, you know, like a tip top, you know, car. I mean, it was a, it was a total bomb. You know, it was a 1970-something Pontiac Catalina. It was like 20 feet long. It like it got you know, you know, five miles to the gallon. It was just this huge car that that I had that I had gotten from my boss. You know, who I worked for um, for like nothing for like you know 500 bucks or something. And I was afraid. You know, I I didn't I didn't know if the car was was going to make it with like seven guys plus hauling a U-Haul, which we had to like, I had to rig up. I had to rig up a hitch. I don't, you know, some some of these older cars, you can't, you can't rig up a hitch. Like you actually have to like, you have to literally chain it to your trunk. I got there bright and early. I wanted to get going. I, I didn't want to drive at night, you know, for the, for the first leg of this. You know, seven o'clock turned into nine o'clock, which turned into 11 o'clock. And I'm like, really? <laughs> I remember, you know, Axel holding up the show, mo you know, most of, most of it. But then it was basically Izzy and Axel, you know, holding up the fucking show. You know, Izzy had to take care of number one, you know, the the, the monkey on his back. So that that always took time. And his girlfriend Desi, you know, had a lot of say so in like how that happened. Sometime I, don't, I can't remember one o'clock in the afternoon, two o'clock. I can't remember exactly when. Um, we finally got on the road. It was hot. I was worried about the car overheating. But we finally got on the road. <laughs> yeah, as you can imagine, you know, the the first fight was, you know, who was going to, you know, whose tape was going in the cassette. Which is kind of funny because at that point, at that point, we were all kind of listening to kind of the same thing. Like, uh, you know, it's kind of stupid because, like, you know, we had, we had two tapes that we listened to most of the time. You know, there was this, you know, Hanai Rocks tape that uh that Izzy had and there was a and there was a fear tape that I had I remember Duff at this point was pretty was pretty pissed off he's pretty uh looking looking in the back mirror you know watching him just sort of staring out the window with his hair like you know he was he was kind of bummed out you know that 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 this thing was kind of like turning into a shit show Izzy was just he was in his own world you know what I mean Stevie was he was the one who was providing all the sort of the comic relief at this point. We got off, you know what I mean? And things calmed down and within a short period of time, everybody was happy. You know, everybody's talking, you know, everybody liked the music that was playing. And then it basically kind of happened, you know, like right, right as we were getting into the grapevine, you know, I felt the transmission started to slip. And I was like, oh. I was actually kind of afraid. I was a, I was a, I was afraid to disappoint these guys. And I was afraid that, you know, I, I let them down in some way. So I kind of kept it to myself for a few miles, you know, until I was sure what was going on. But sure enough, the car basically just wouldn't go any further. Did it die on a hill? No, it, it, it died going up, but I had enough just to get up. And then, and then I coasted. And the funny part is that, is that I didn't really tell anybody what was happening, you know, but we were coasting for a while. 
<laughs> then we started, we started to slow down. I was like, okay, guys, we got, we got a little problem here. Um, you know, I think we just lost the transmission. <laughs> and sure enough, you know, I can't remember who it was. Maybe it was Duff. Maybe it was Izzy. They were like, oh, fuck, Danny, you know, fucking blah, 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 you know, can't get your shit together. I'm like, like fuck you. It's my fucking car. <laughs> I was worried about this fucking thing making it up there to begin with. It's the beginning of summer. You're on the grapevine heading into Fresno. It's probably hot as shit. I'm sure everybody's pissed off. You know, you, you said at one point the ship had many captains. So I'm sure everybody, you know, thought that they knew the, the, what the solution was to, to this whole thing. Um, but you guys are stranded now. So what happens next? Yeah, well, not everybody, but yeah, everybody had their idea of what, what, the, what the problem with the, what the car was. But me driving the car, I, I could feel it. I, I, I knew that, that the car was, I couldn't get it out of first gear. You know what I mean? I, I mean, I, 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 sorry, first gear was gone. And it wasn't enough power, you know, to get it into, into second or third gear at this point because it was just too heavy. We tried a lot of different things, you know, stupid things that, you know, people who don't know anything about cars try you know, to fix the problem, ultimately to realize that we're fucked. We're literally in the middle of nowhere. And, uh, and we only really had one choice at this point that we had, we had to walk. So you had to walk and you had to walk so that you could at least find something or somewhere to get a tow truck or something to come out. Right. That was the plan. I had a gas card, which was like a credit card. Um, and I had a triple A card. I mean, I had, you know, I prepared for this. I wasn't an idiot. You know, there was, there, there was just, there was nothing. There was no one. Even, even then, you know, uh, you know, there wasn't as much traffic as there is now. Where we were, it seemed really desolate. You know, you know, it's not like cars were whizzing by us at this point. I can't remember whose idea it was. You know, I think it was Slash. It, it, it had to be his idea because he, he was a walker. He liked to walk. He was just like, let's we just let's just start walking, and and they did, and I would just was barely moving the truck, you know, five ten miles an hour, or whatever, you know, ahead of them, just looking in the rearview mirror, you know, they looked like a heavy metal band, they dressed like a heavy metal band, so you just watching these guys with their peg tight pants and their, you know, and their hair, just walking down the freeway. <laughs> you know, I can't imagine people are like looking at this. The remarkable thing is that this went on for miles. I mean, like this, it's not like we walked a hundred feet and said, fuck it. I mean, you know, they, wa they walked a few miles before finally it was just like, it was too hot. Fuck this. And somebody was just like, let's, let's, let's hitch a ride, you know, up, you know, let's, let's just, let's hitch. To watch the video podcast of the first 50 gigs that includes exclusive photos and videos from this episode and the entire season, join our growing community on Patreon and subscribe. When Guns went on its first road trip to Seattle, Duff had booked, booked us in all the clubs he was familiar with from playing in the bands that he was in from up there, which was like the Fastbacks and some other bands. And so he booked us gigs in like Sacramento and a couple gigs in Oregon and a couple gigs uh, in Seattle. Well, so when we got going, we got as far as Fresno, the car broke down. We took the guitars out of the U-Haul, told our crew guys, you get the car fixed and meet us up in Seattle. So we sort of canned all those other gigs. We knew it was going to take us a while to get up there. You know, none of this was familiar to us, being stuck kind of out on the, uh, the frontier of the I-5, you know. And by the frontier, I mean all the, the rest stops and... and you know, literally being stuck on the I-5. The deal was, was that they were going to hitch and me and Jojo, the other, the, the other, the other roadie in the, in the band, we were going to try and get the car to a, to a, to a gas station or to a mechanic, get it fixed and then follow them up there. That was the plan. I was, honestly, I was surprised. You know what I mean? I, I honestly thought that the argument was going to go the other way, that we were just going to turn around and go back. I think what ultimately sealed the deal is that within a few minutes of them hanging out their thumbs, a truck pulled over and picked them up, like that fast, and it was done. And I was just like, okay. So we grabbed the guitars, we stood on the side of the road, and if you try and picture us, um, probably 
knowing what we look like, you know, and then pictures on the side of the road with guitar cases wanting a ride. It would make the, like, the visions of the hitcher seem like a cakewalk, you know what I mean? And finally got picked up by a semi and we rode with this, and this is the first time I ever was ever exposed to somebody that lived on speed. Like, and so we were all in the cab, you know, with this guy. You know, so there's five of us and a driver. And we, I don't know how many miles we went, but you know, we just sort of hanging out. And they were gone and we were like, okay, we gotta somehow do this thing. And then somehow, like, because we didn't have the, the guys and it was getting late now, like it was late afternoon and it wasn't so hot, as it, it wasn't so hot anymore. The car started to like go and I was getting up to like 40 miles an hour, you know, and, and within a, within a pretty quick period of time, we made it to a gas station. It was just about to close. And somehow we convinced the guy, please, you know, fix the car, you know, do something. He's like, well, I, I, you know, like I can't fix your fucking transmission right here, right now, but let's see what I can do. Essentially all he did was he, he pulled down the transmission filter, cleaned it out, slapped it back in the damn thing drove. He says, I don't know how long it's going to last, but here you are, you're back on the road. And they were like, yeah, okay, we're doing it. And uh, we weren't that far behind. Problem is, you know, I, you know, like an idiot, I fucking, you know, I threw my wallet out the window by accident. And that made things very complicated. I don't know why. I put my wallet in the, in the visor. You know, I just put it up there. I don't even know why I did that. But the sun was coming off my face. And I was like, ah, fuck. Opened up the visor and wallet must have went right out the window. I didn't even realize it you know, and until we pretty much were out of gas. But I do remember when I flung the visor. So we drove back somehow, oh you know, you know, we drove back and I'm sitting there running across the freeway, trying to figure out where my wallet was. You know, I didn't find it obviously. And then finally we just gave up. You were just like in a constant panic, trying to figure out how to catch up with the guys that are now have hitched in this, I think it was like an 18 wheeler that picked him up and and they, they went into this, you know, into the cab. I mean, this is really where the stories diverge, right? They get picked up by, by this 18 wheeler who ended up being a speed freak, um, but at least got them up the interstate. Now you're, you're running around fixing your car, trying to find your wallet, trying to catch up with them. Um, so hopefully, I, I don't know how you expected to find them, but if you did, uh, they would jump back in and you guys would continue. Was that, was that what you were thinking? I honestly had no, no clue at this point. Like I, uh, you know, the only, the only thing that we knew was where they were going to be, you know, where the show was, but how we were going to like find them along the way. Like I didn't, I didn't, I didn't really think that was going to happen. You know, we had no way of contacting each other. You know, when you say hell tour, I mean like, it, you know, it, it was, it was hell for, for everybody, even, you know, even us or me, you know, cause like, no matter how carefully I tried to plan this fucking thing, you know, everything fucked up, like everything fucked up. Like I, I, you know, the feelings that I was having at the time were like, like, why the fuck did you even try to do this? What it brought out in me, you know, was like this survival mechanism that I didn't really know that I had. I, I mean, I think I had like 20 bucks, like that went in the tank, that, that money was all the money I had to get to the mechanic guy. And that, and after that, I was broke. And JoJo didn't have any money, or he only had a few bucks on him, you know, enough for us to buy candy bars or something. We literally panhandled our way all the way up the coast, and I actually got pretty good at it, <laughs> pretty pretty fast. Now, what was driving me at this point, again, was that I really thought I was letting them down. I really thought I was letting these guys down, like, like, like I had fucked up twice. I'd fucked up the car. I'd fucking fucked up the money. You know, but I was going to get there somehow, some way I was going to get them their equipment so that they could actually play. I mean, at least they took their guitars, so they had those, you know, but we had the drum kit, the amps, you know, everything else. So, you know, unless somebody loaned them all that stuff, they weren't, they weren't really playing. You know, me and Jojo were like, we got to get up there somehow. Like Jojo was terrible at panhandling, like he couldn't do it. You know, like, I had to do it, Like he just couldn't do it. So you panhandled your way up and how far did you get? We're traveling north up the five freeway, you know, headed towards Sacramento where we were hoping we might be able to, we might be able to catch up with the guys. Too much time had gone by at this point. Like we weren't, 
even if we made it up there, we weren't, we, we, we missed the show fearing that, you know, that the car wouldn't make it with all the, you know, with the U-Haul, with all the equipment. I was like, we, we got to ditch the U-Haul. <laughs> Jojo was like, what? I'm like, yeah, we got to, we got to figure out a way to ditch the U-Haul. And I'm like, well, what are we going to do? And I'm like, well, we got to find some place to lock it up or something. I literally like walked into a hardware store and I stole a locking chain, like, like not just like a little chain, like a fucking chain and a lock. We were driving around Sacramento at this point, trying to find a place to like, you know, you know, ditch the U-Haul with all the equipment in it. And there it was city hall. I'm like, what safer place in city hall? Let's do it here. So I chained the, I chained the thing up to a, to a lamppost in the parking lot and off we went. To preview the full experience of the first 50 gigs video podcast that includes exclusive photos and videos from Mark's archive, check out the first 50 gigs YouTube channel. You'll find the link right here in our episode show notes. I don't know how many miles we went, but you know, we just sort of hanging out and we did stops here and there, but we didn't have any money. So yeah, we, we would go into these, uh, um, uh, these patches that they had on the side of the road where people were growing agricultural kind of deals and we'd steal food out of there. You know, yeah, onions was one of them and carrots and shit like that. This old Mexican farmer picked us up in like a small pickup and we all got in the back. We had our guitars and the truck was so beat up and run down that the bed started rubbing against the back the wheel tires. Well. Yeah. And it was smoking. He said, I'm, I'm sorry, you know, I, I can't take you guys. And we were stuck on the I-5, in the middle of nowhere, you know, and uh, we did end up getting a ride. But yeah, there were so many, you know, being just, just out there, eating onions from the onion fields outside of Bakersfield, going down because we were hungry, you know, and like grabbing onions and, and eating them on the side of the I-5. Wow. Pretty cool, pretty cool, wow. yeah. We just kept sort of inching our way up towards Seattle. And finally we got dropped off again and some girls picked us up. Two chicks picked us up and put us in the back. It wasn't a, it wasn't a truck, it was like a, like a pickup with a cab with a cab over the top, you know? What do you call the, the little shell? Anyway, so uh, we, we piled into there and they drove us as far as, um, I think it was Oregon. And then one of our friends from Seattle actually came and got us and took us to this house, uh, to this guy Donner's house, who's a good friend of Duff's. And then we just partied like crazy. And then the next day we showed up at the venue and we used the Fastback's gear and we got up and played our first set. And then they didn't want to pay us for whatever reason. And so we cornered the guy in his own office and bolted the door and fucking threatened the guy within inches of his life and we got paid. And then we uh, got a ride from one of Duff's friends all the way back to Los Angeles and that was about it. <laughs> yeah, a lot of, I mean, a lot of stuff in between, but yeah, that's, the, that's the, the nuts and bolts of it. Somewhere around Central Oregon, you know, uh, or a little bit beyond that, like like we ran into a, like a, a roadblock basically. Like, like nobody would would talk to me nobody would even like i we could not get money like not even a quarter like i wasn't letting the gas go all the way down to zero at this point you know i was i was i was hedging a little bit so we had a little bit of gas left but i just we just couldn't do it like you know hours went by and i i couldn't get anybody to like you know give me any money one thing was clear like not only you know did we you know miss the show but even if we got up to Seattle, we, we had no idea where they were at this point. The decision was to like, just turn around, just admit failure and turn around. And uh, so we did, and we made it a little bit down. At this point we were on the one-on-one, so it was a little, a little easier, but we made it, made it to this place called Ashland. And uh, that's when things got kind of weird. I don't know exactly what prompted me to like turn up I'll, you know, get off the one-on-one and turn up this road, you know, because uh, I don't know if you know what Oregon looks like, but it's just trees, um, at least at least along the one-on-one. So you don't, sometimes you don't even know what direction you're you're in because there's so many fucking trees. But I turned up this road and oh, I remember now I saw a church, I saw, I saw a fucking something that looked like a church. That's why I pulled up. And I thought, okay, yeah, it's a church, you know, they'll, you know, they'll, 
this Jew boy is going to take advantage of some good old-fashioned Christian charity. It was not a church. I mean, it was a church, but wasn't any kind of church I had ever seen before. We knew it was different because, like, you know, they were just kind of like men kind of walking around with these, like, long white robes and, uh, you know, not really paying much attention to us, just kind of gliding around. And then this, this guy kind of comes out and starts talking to us and and I explained to him, you know, what's going on, you know, and that we were just, we were just looking for any assistance that we could get to get back home. And, you know, I was trying to, just trying to just be honest. Everybody was in robes. Everybody was wearing the same thing. It was like out of a Twilight Zone movie. Not everybody, but yeah, most, you know, you know, they had robes with like, you know, like the, they weren't wearing their hoods, but, you know, their hoods were back. And, you know, I remember like they had piping down their robes. It was like a cult place, you know what I mean? Or, you know, it was... It was like a cult. It must have been some some sort of cult religion. Like I don't to this day, I don't I don't know what it was or who those guys were. Or... All I know is is that this very kind of congenial, this very congenial sort of Pat Robertson looking guy was talking to us and asking me all these very personal questions and and you know not just you know what our what our situation was, but like you know personal questions, like probing questions. There was a whole compound behind it, and you know the where we went was this was, was this guy's sort of office, which was like a, like his house. You know, nothing weird happened. You know, you know we weren't you know we weren't we weren't abducted you know or, or anything like that. It just it was just weird. Like I had never really seen anything like that. And so they 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 brought you in. They fed you. Um, they probably realized you weren't going to stay. Maybe they wanted to introduce you to their way of life or not. I don't know. Um, but it sounds like uh, you landed in somewhat of a safe place, even if it felt like you stepped into a cult. Whether he got the, you know, the, the feeling that we weren't interested or vice versa, um, he did help us. And, and he gave us a kind of a voucher, which, uh, which we could use at this uh, Exxon station, at, you know, down the road. And... And we were able, and with that voucher, we were able to get a full tank of gas and a little bit of food. And we were able to basically make it out of Oregon. Once we got out of Oregon, my luck started, you know, changed right away. And I was able to panhandle and again, and I was really successful. Like we, I was often making much more than I needed, you know, in a very, very quick time. Just pull over in less than, in less than an hour, 20, 30 bucks. What I was surprised when I got up, but when I got back, was that the guys had beaten us back. Of course, the U-Haul was still in Sacramento, and we were able we were able to retrieve all their equipment. You know, so I didn't I didn't have to go back there and tell them, well, guys, you know, your equipment's all been stolen. So we were I was able to get back with all the stuff. So you got back, you got the gear, you guys reunited. What was their side of the story? They they were surprised that they had gotten back and we weren't there. And, you know, they actually thought something weird had happened to us. At least some of them did, you know. Slash told me that it was a total nightmare. Having everything that could possibly go wrong and go wrong and survive it and actually make it to Seattle and do our first show in Seattle, um, that was like nobody, nobody I knew could have handled it. You know, and we had the best fucking time. You know? <laughs> that really cemented the camaraderie between the five of us. And that was it. That just set the whole pace for everything. When we got back from the Hell Tour, from that shared experience of, of that thing and, and knowing that we had each other's backs, and at that point we knew we were a band. We knew we were ready just to, to fuck up L.A., you know? We now finally, all of us, had a solidified band and guys we knew had our backs. We had each other's backs. When they got back, I think it was a pivotal moment. I don't know what your thoughts are about that. They were definitely a lot tighter, that's for sure. You know, what was before, you know, kind of a, you know, group of guys, you know, that seemed kind of tribal, you know, uh, you know, and separate, you know, now they, now they definitely, they had experienced something together and they were definitely tighter. You know, the few shows that they played after that, 
they were a lot of fun and and the band started spending more time together like not just rehearsing um they started going out as a group you know you talked about that these guys left as really five separate you know individuals and and they went through this experience together and they came back as a gang they came back as a as a band i know from having interviewed the guys um you know this was a really defining moment in the band's history in that um you know they wanted to finally stop all of that incestuous revolving door of the changing of the bands like they knew like this was it they didn't want to move around they found their tribe but they were all in LA kind of trying to figure out you know where they belonged and who they belonged with and this trip cemented the five of them they they finally found their surrogate family in each other and it was about the music it was about fucking up LA with their style and their sound but it was also about being a uh, a gang and being together and being a band and that was it there was there was no going back after hell tour it was a really big moment in the history of the band one of the things that happened at least from what slash if i remember what i'm remembering you know the the conversations that i had with slash was that is that essentially he let these guys in like i said you know slash is very very separate you know from everybody else he thinks differently so but now this was this was different you know what i mean like he had gone through this experience so like he he became close with duff you know out of this experience like he kind of he kind of understood izzy out of this experience you know what i mean the, the, maybe the opposite happened with axel who knows i think what happens here is that slash lets you know lets everybody in you know he actually like befriends the other you know the other bandmates i think what you're getting at is that when adversity hit people showed their true colors and slash was able to see um and get to know the guys in a different in a different way mark you talk about this um you talk about that you know this band needed that adversity uh to stay together they they had worked with each other in the past at least most of them and it, it would work for about 3 months and then they'd have a fight and they'd break up and they'd move along and i think they all just realized that besides the fact they're perfectly fit musicians they don't really need to they they got to make it work now because they know they're the best musicians to work with they fit like a glove and around that time like duff was the punk guy slash was the blues hard rock guy izzy was the hanoi rocks guy maybe rolling stones a little bit duff was the funky punch to it and axel was just a drop of everything and they just worked together whatever somebody did came up with a riff that all the whole band would jump on it and it would be a song that they could all agree upon it wasn't just that no that's my song this is your song it was just the band made whatever came up their song and everyone knew that that was that was they're making music they're 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 making something good so it it was you know it was a matter of basically just getting to the next gig you know they knew that some at some point somebody would pick them the word of mouth would get around somebody would pick them up and they'd get to record their music and that's exactly what happened eventually yeah you know by March of 1986 which was about a year after they got together they're signed on Geffen and so of course that opened up a whole new ball a whole new road of problems for them their main goal was to get a record deal so they can get their music out to people so they were making music for themselves they weren't writing music for the record company or for the radio they they were writing music that they liked and what they were influenced on from the 60s and 70s music that you know 1985 the music changed there wasn't really a lot going on so that was their way of saying now this is this 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 is what the music should sound like and they just since no one else is really doing it we'll do it so basically that was it that's what that's what made it you know that's what made it work is is just getting worrying about what was going to be don't think too far in advance get to the next gig get to the next gig and each gig more people kept coming and then we had ads and we had you know everything that was going on was working and word of mouth was getting across that these guys are good and finally you know they got they got to they got to to do it so that's pretty much it <laughs> 
to watch the video podcast of the first 50 gigs. That includes exclusive photos and videos from this episode and the entire season. Join our growing community on Patreon and subscribe. It's true that the band was certainly closer. It's true that the band, you know, had settled, you know, and they, you know, they weren't really, you know, they weren't looking for anybody else, but there were, you know, there were still competing interests. Mark, you should never discount the influence of the Rolling Stones. That was, it was, it was huge for, for them, especially for Izzy. In fact, you know, several of the songs are literally, you know, chord for chord, you know, right out of Rolling Stone songs. What I remember was Slash alone a lot writing these songs and Axel separately in his little apartment writing the lyrics and the magic kind of happened when they all got, you know, when they brought these things together and, and it's true, you know what I mean? The rest, you know, the other three bandmates would pick it up real fast, you know, in some, in some respects, you know, like when that A&R guy, you know, Tom kind of came into the picture. There was a little bit of a, even though they, you know, even though they were happy and, and they were certainly getting a buzz, you know, it also helped that they were, that they were playing in front of, you know, some bands that have, you know, big followings, you know, like, like the, like the one they played with Motley Crue. So they, they, they benefited a lot from that. You know, they benefited a lot from the bands that they were, that they were playing with. Like from my point of view, like, this little scene that was happening at the time, Motley Crue, Poison, Rat, they inserted themselves into that moment. Like it was like, it was like the perfect moment in time for them. Some of these bands to me were like much more polished and Guns N' Roses seemed forever to be like in a disarray. <laughs> nobody, nobody could get their shit together. That was the funny part about, that was the funny part about the whole thing is that everybody just could not get their shit together. Duff was aloof, you know, Stevie, basically didn't know, you know, really what was going on. He kind of just followed Slash's lead. Slash, like, trying to write, you know, song after song after song. And he was, you know, this that period was, like, really this incredible creative time for him. You know, like, the, the songs that you know, the songs that play on the radio all the time were written, were written in this period. And, you know, I saw, you know, at least three or four of them get strung together, you know, just with him, just with, you know. Izzy was a barely functioning heroin addict. Axel was mired in personal, interpersonal relationship problems. I can't remember that guy's name, that weird guy, you know, like Axel was constantly getting into fights with some other, some other dude over some other girl. It was Nadir, was it Nadir de Priest? Yeah, I think it was, yeah, it was him, that guy. From London, he was a lead singer of London. Yeah. And Stephen had his own issues. So what you're really saying to us is that we maybe have this um, over-optimistic picture that they got back from Hell Tour and, and they were this organized entity that was ready to dominate. And basically what you're telling us is that even when they came back, yes, this, this trip may have had an impact on them and it showed up when they played together, um, but they each, each had their own separate um, non-functioning parts of their life that they were dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, I don't want to make it seem like I'm discounting the importance of what you're saying, because it is important. It's definitely important. And after this point, bandmates became friends. And it was that friendship that was able to get them through problems that they were having. You know, like they were, you know, the friendships were growing, you know, basically stronger than the problems. But the problems were, were real and they were heavy, you know, especially the drug addiction part, which almost destroyed the band and eventually did destroy the band. Fast forward to, you know, around the time where Tom Sutek comes comes into, into the picture and they're actually getting interest, like nibbles, like record labels are actually showing some interest. You know, Axel is becoming more and more sort of maniacal during this during this period and he would have like these fucking shit fits slash would sometimes like literally order me like order me to like go in the bathroom where he's locked himself in and like talk him off a ledge or something like literally right before the band's about to explode into this huge thing i mean the writing's on the wall that you know that, the, that the, these two guys are gonna are, are just not compatible 
just as as important as this point you're trying to make about about the Hell Tour was the time that the record label started showing interest because around this time, you know, prior to the record labels showed interest, the band was going through another crisis and, you know, they were breaking apart and the, and the, and the problem was, was drugs, you know, and it was this, it was this, it was this interest, you know, from the record label that, you know, that, you know, kept them together because, I mean, that, that was, that was it. That was the prize. They all had to work together for this prize. If they had to do another year where, where the record labels weren't showing interest, I, I don't, I don't know that they would have made it. Band got signed, which was good, but then it, they went down. They went down a downward spiral. That money, that little bit of money, that seventy-five hundred bucks that they each got at that time, caused more problems than, than they were having before. That it just it, it, they got really dark and things got crazy. And they thought they could just record a record, and they wanted to write a couple more songs. And there was three or four months that went by that was that you know they were either going to get dropped, go to jail, or die, or all of the above. So that was a really hard three months, I'd say, from May of '86. But after that, things things started going in one direction. They had a really good fucking time because that house was full of women and drugs, and they went out every fucking night, and they and you know and they played, and they were having a and they were having a fucking hell of a time. I don't know about you, Jason. I, I know Mark's not you know not a junkie, but you know it's just it, it it plays a really big part in this story, and you really have to understand you know. You know that drug and 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 what it does. You know a lot of the things that you talked about um, were things that I didn't expect, and I'm really glad to hear that perspective. And I think it adds a lot of color um, and emotional weight to the story. So thank you for for going there with us. And Mark, as always, thank you. And um, we'll be back with another episode pretty soon. So uh, we'll cap it off here. Thank you guys. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the first 50 gigs, Guns N' Roses, and the making of Appetite for Destruction. To watch the video podcast, access bonus episodes and galleries, and buy show merchandise, join our growing community on Patreon and subscribe.